And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing good. We are in a long weekend Mm -hmm. here in Canada. Um, Now it is raining right now, but it's the May long weekend. It always rains and snows, so <laughs> I'm not bothered by it. Well, it was very sunny yesterday. We went on a 13K walk in the park. An unintentionally long 13K walk. Right. Uh, so, you know, the fact that it's overcast and raining today is just fine because we got our sunshine and exercise yesterday. I did get my first sunburn of the year, so... Which, honestly, it's like May... So that's pretty good for you. I guess, but I mean, I'm not going outside because of the pandemic, so. (laughs) Sure, fair enough. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing all right. Um, Because it's kind of overcast and rainy, I'm a little bit... um, Lethargic? Yeah, a little bit. It's like the feeling of being... A little sluggish? Wrapped under a blanket, but the blanket is like clouds. Sure. Uh, When you walk, your legs feel like pillars of granite. Is that a reference that I'm not getting? It's a reference to the movie today. Oh, sure. Because today we're watching The Man Who Turned to Stone from 1957, directed by Laszlo Kardosh. This is the second half of the double bill from Columbia B-movie producer Sam Katzman. Uh, So this would have been the second feature after Zombies of Moratau, which we watched last week exciting honestly the only thing i think of with this movie title is that medusa has to be in it but i it doesn't i have no context for what is in this movie so i don't know i don't know yeah i had never heard of this movie uh before researching it up for the show um same with zombies of moratau but that movie was good yeah it was surprisingly prescient and we we quite enjoyed it so hopefully this movie is good as well. Uh, like Zombies of Moratau, this was written by blacklisted writer Bernard Gordon under his pseudonym, Raymond T. Marcus. And to learn more about Gordon and his experience under the blacklist, uh, you can check with last week's episode where we've talked about him in more detail. If you had to come up with a pseudonym, how would you go about it? I don't know. Um, I do know that Raymond T. Marcus was a real person. Oh. Uh, he was a friend of Bernard Gordon's who didn't write, like didn't wasn't involved in the film industry, wasn't involved in anything, which I think was so that checks could be sent to a real person under that name and taxes could be filed for that income under a real person with that name. So no one would know that Katzman was paying a blacklisted writer. That makes sense. Sure. But what about like, you know, you're not on the blacklist because of the communist witch hunt in Hollywood. Like you really just want a pseudonym. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's there's plenty of reasons to have a pseudonym that aren't you legally aren't allowed to work in your industry. I I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I've always kind of like 
wondered about going by Ted, which is uh, like <laughs> Teddy. The, my middle name is Theodore. Yeah. So I've always thought about that, but I don't know like what I would pair that with. Yeah. Who knows? I would probably just mix in some like family maiden names with some like family first names. Sure. Sure. Okay. Back to the movie. Right. So <laughs> same producer, Sam Katzman, same writer. Bernard Gordon, uh, also returning as cinematographer Benjamin Klein, uh, but our director is different. So our director this time around is Laszlo Kardos, who was born in Hungary in 1905. Uh, he made four feature films in Hungary in the 1930s before coming to the United States at the start of World War II. His first American film was a universal B-movie called Dark Streets of Cairo in 1940, which was a mystery film. Uh, and he was billed under the name Leslie Cardos, which he used for all of his American films. Okay. So um, his name that will be on the credits for this movie will say Leslie Cardos? That's right. Okay. The Man Who Turned to Stone, uh, made 17 years after Dark Streets of Cairo, was his fourth American feature film. Oh, out of a total of five before his early death in 1962. Is that really early? You said he was born in 1905. Yeah, so he died at the age of 56. Okay, so a little young. Yeah, I mean, I guess not like super early for the hard-drinking, hard-smoking mid-20th century, but like young for... Like, like you don't die at that age because you were taking real good care of yourself. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it certainly is unusual to see that few movies in someone's career in this time period, especially if they weren't like, I don't know, some sort of major auteur like Carl Th Dreyer who would go through <laughs> like mental health breakdowns between each movie. Yeah. Did he do a lot more films outside of America, like back in Hungary? Uh, so yeah. Four total films in Hungary, five total in America for a total oh. of nine in his career. Uh, his career also included a short film, three episodes of television, and a couple of screenplays. Our main villain in this film is played by actor Victor Jory, who was born in Dawson City in 1902 and frequently played villains. He was Oberon in the 1936 version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, he was Injun Joe in 1938's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Jonas Wilkerson in Gone with the Wind, um, but he did also occasionally play heroic parts. He was The Shadow in the original 1940 movie serial version of The Shadow, and he was a police detective, the lead of the series Manhunt on TV from 1959 to 1961. Okay. Our lead actress is Anne Doran, a 46-year-old longtime film performer who we last saw way back in 1939's The Man They Could Not Hang, uh, but is best remembered today as the mother of James Dean's character in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Okay. Other familiar faces are William Hudson, who was the alcoholic ex in The She-Creature, Paul Cavanaugh, who we've seen in The Man in Half Moon Street, Son of Dr. Jekyll, Bride of the Gorilla, The Strange Door, and House of Wax, Gene Wiles, who was a nurse in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 
Austrian actor Friedrich Ledeber, who is back after we last saw him as the native chief in Voodoo Island. And finally, George Lynn, who we've seen in House of Frankenstein and The Werewolf. Uh, so I have a question for you about the crew. You said that besides the director, it's pretty much the same crew mm. as Zombies of Moritau. Mm-hmm. So when were these filmed? Like, were they filmed back to back? Because they must not have been filmed simultaneously. Well, they couldn't have been filmed simultaneously because, yeah, the, the DOP was the same on both. But they must have been filmed fairly close to one another, uh, given that they were released on a double bill with each other. Um, so most likely, you know, one was being filmed while the other was in post-production. Um, I don't know exactly the order, but like because a director is still involved in a picture through pre-production and post-production, but a, a cinematographer is really only there for the, the shooting part, um, that would be my assumption. Okay. So The Man Who Turned to Stone was released in March of 1957 alongside Zombies of Moritau. Um, it was not as well received <laughs> as Zombies of Moritau. Zombies of Moritau gets some credit for being this like halfway point between White Zombie and Night of the Living Dead. Um, whereas The Man Who Turned to Stone is considered to be exploring horror themes that were like already like decades passe by the 1950s. Okay. Um, and it received faint praise from Variety at the time, uh, which called it, quote, adequate to hold the lower half of a horror double feature. <laughs> adequate. Yeah. It did its job. Right. Adequate, but like adequate to hold the lower half yeah. of a horror double feature is sort of like saying, you know, in film critics speak of the time, like, yeah, this is good enough to be a school lunch. It, it fills an hour. Mm-hmm. So we have it available to watch on our YouTube playlist. Um, I'm not sure what to expect. Given what you've said about, you know, it exploring some outdated themes or whatever, I am kind of expecting like a mad scientist mm. flick. Um, With glands, maybe. I don't know about glands. Um, given the 50s, maybe like an atomic ray gun. Sure. Um, that turns people to stone. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. If you would like to watch along with us, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Man Who Turned to Stone from 1957, directed by Laszlo Kardosh. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man Who Turned to Stone from 1957, directed by Laszlo Kodosh. What did you think of this, Ben? There's no Medusa. No. I think it should have been called The Men Who Turned to Stone, for one thing. Well, there is a woman who turns to stone. Yeah. She's not really like, she doesn't turn to stone actively in the part of the movie that we see. But, um... To my great surprise, I really liked this. 
Yes, it was a surprisingly good watch. Mm-hmm. Um, little fucked up. It's hard to tell if the reasons why I liked it were intentional or not. Okay. But since the writer was a leftist, uh, we can perhaps give him the benefit of the doubt. Are leftists inherently better writers? No, no. I just mean that like (laughs) the themes that this movie addresses, I don't know if it's doing it on purpose, but Mm. I think it's more likely that it's doing it on purpose given the political views of the writer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I thought that this was um, actually a good time. Um, it does suffer from a lot of the trademark cheap B-movie signs Yeah. Um, of, well, we can't end the movie yet, so we'll just have him walk this way instead of actually doing anything. Yeah, there's a lot of walking around in the park. Yeah, but, you know, it was fairly good. Yeah. Um, the atmosphere that we were missing in Zombies of Moratau is definitely present here. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so yeah, I think it's a fairly good horror movie. You mentioned that it was a bit fucked up. Why don't you tell the listeners about the story of this movie and they can decide for themselves. (laughs) To truly understand how fucked up this movie is, maybe watch it. It's on our YouTube playlist. (laughs) Um, but in lieu of that, here is the plot summary. You're set at a detention center, rehabilitation center for young women who are delinquents to society. It's a women's prison. Yes. And we have a new inmate. Her name is Anna. She's crying and, you know, some people are trying to console her, uh, specifically Tracy, who is like our main inmate uh, that we are engaged with. Um, And then suddenly we hear screaming out on the grounds. Now, Tracy says, no, like try not to think about it Anna like it's fine but not really someone's going to be dead in the morning lo and behold a woman is dead in the infirmary the official report is that she died of heart failure now Tracy is an inmate um but she works as almost like a receptionist for the like prison psychiatrist social social worker worker, uh, named Dr. Adams Um, So Tracy shares her conspiracy with Dr. Adams and Dr. Adams is like, okay, that that's a little weird, but it's all circumstantial. So why don't I go digging for like the death certificates and try to put your fears to rest? Yeah. Tracy's like, this has been happening for a while. Like there's been a lot of these. Oh yeah. It was a heart attack, whatever kind of deaths going on. So yeah. Now Dr. Adams, she's only been here for three months Um, So she hasn't seen, like, the pattern. But she's, you know, willing to look into it, though she doesn't really think much of it. We hear that, like, Dr. Adams has kind of been butting heads with the administration, specifically Mrs. Ford, who kind of seems to run the admin side of the prison. We see an example of this butting of heads when Dr. Adams goes to look for the death certificates And she is told off by Mrs. Ford and a couple of other doctors, like, no, you need to ask for permission. Why are you looking for this stuff? By the way, all the initiatives you're doing, we're going to cancel them because you've done this. Just like really like she's hit a nerve by looking for these certificates. Mm. Meanwhile, 
Anne, that new inmate, um, she was sent to the infirmary um, because according to her profile, it says that she has heart murmurs and she has had a stomach ache. That night, we see that she gets taken by a man named Eric, who is tall and gaunt and doesn't seem to want to speak. Yeah, he's Columbia Pictures, 1950s, no-name brand Boris Karloff. (laughs) So she's picked up by Eric. She's screaming. He manages to subdue her and takes her to the doctors we've been introduced to through Dr. Adams. So these doctors are Dr. Murdoch, who is like the head administrator of the prison, Mrs. Ford, Dr. Cooper, Dr. Meyer, and Dr. Freneau. Why are there so many doctors running a prison? That's, that's strange, you might be thinking. We see them put Anne into this deep bath solution, uh, after tying her up, of course, um, putting some electrodes on her head and then sitting Eric down and putting electrodes on him. And then zip, zap, zoop, Anne is dead and Eric no longer looks gaunt. All of these people in their mad scientist laboratory are also like all dressed like it's the turn of the century, which at the time watching the movie, I was like, that's weird. Uh, And then it turned out that was intentional. (laughs) We learn that basically they drain the life from Anne and put it into Eric um, to extend his life. Um, But Eric is clearly growing a bit of a uh, resistance to this transference beam, I think they call it, and seeming to have to do this more frequently. Now, the way that we get some of this exposition of what has happened to Anne is because Dr. Cooper is clearly like frustrated with his fellow mad scientists he's sick of constantly murdering young girls yeah he's like you know this is like the second time we've had to do this this week like clearly this isn't a long-term solution we should just stop doing this Mm -hmm. and that causes him to you know have a falling out with his fellow mad scientists now to get rid of the body they set it up to look like Anne hanged herself With the justification that she committed suicide, she was really upset about being here. You know, what a tragedy. However, at the coroner's inquest, Dr. Adams is like, okay, I saw Anne. She didn't seem like she was at the point of committing suicide. She was depressed, but she wasn't to that point of ending her life. And, you know, there are strange things afoot at this detention center. So this raises enough suspicion that Dr. Jess Rogers, a psychologist, is uh, hired to investigate by the State Department. So Dr. Rogers and Dr. Adams work together to try to uncover what's going on. But again, they keep getting stonewalled by the administration at every turn. Uh, They also get more familiar with each other and start to fall in love. Sure. It is like... A pretty mild element of the movie i would say like it's not the most prominent subplot of that nature that we've seen this is true but i feel like it's worthwhile to point out here's our breeding couple yeah absolutely yeah they fall in love because they're the good guys and they're a man and a woman exactly yeah eventually rogers gets to dr cooper 
Um, he won't really give much away because there's still like 30 minutes left to go in this movie. Mm. Um, but he gives enough to say that uh, you see these sharp scissors, stabs his hand, no injury because of stone skin. We are turning to stone. That's that's the name of the movie, sort of. He can tell, though, that the end of his life is coming. Um, you can hear an audible heartbeat whenever you're in the room with him, and it's coming from him, and he's getting more and more gaunt. So he's like, I know that my end is near. I might die or disappear in the near future. So, Dr. Rogers, um, expect a package in your mail soon. And Rogers is like, just give it to me now. And Cooper's like, no, mystery. <laughs> just as Cooper suspected, um, he goes to the meeting of the mad scientists. And they're like, yeah, we took a vote. And you've been voted off the island, right, Dr. Cooper. We we know your time is coming, that, that you need a transference. But we're not gonna. So Cooper isn't surprised when he gets voted off the island. He had the falling out and everything. And there's this really interesting scene with Cooper and the other mad scientists because he's like, yeah, like we've lived for over 200 years. No man should really live this long. We start to consider ourselves above others, etc. And then it starts to sink in for him that he only has like a few minutes left. And he's like, oh, but my research, maybe if I just had a few more years, I could finish my research. Please, let's do the transference and like kill someone so I can live longer. So it's a really neat turn that you get to see. It's, it seems fairly realistic in terms of his psychology. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're like, no. And so he dies on the table. Rogers eventually gets Cooper's diary, um, thanks to a letter in the mail, and he gets the full picture of what's going on. Basically, Cooper explains in his diary that he was born in like the mid 1700s and he and his fellow colleagues, Mrs. Ford, Dr. Murdoch, all these people, even Eric, met while studying under Count St. Germain, <laughs> you know, French Aleister Crowley. Right. <laughs> Only, you know, earlier than Aleister Crowley. Yeah. Um, if, uh, if you want to know more details about Count St. Germain. He actually makes an appearance in um, some past episodes, most notably episode 152 uh, on the 1949 Queen of Spades. Mm -hmm. um, but the gist is he claimed to be 500 years old. He was super into like alchemy, science, philosophy. The occult. Yeah. yeah. He was a rich weirdo. Yeah. And Count St. Germain was definitely not his real name. <laughs> As far as this movie goes, these mad scientists studied under him to learn how to stop aging and prolong life. They succeeded, clearly, uh, but in order to continue this long life, they have to take the life force from specifically young women of a childbearing age, that seems to be like the best source of this energy, um, and transfer it into themselves, which kills the donor the donor yeah it's it's meant to be like they're taking bioelectrical current mm -hmm. from them i i feel like the i mean obviously the reason why the best source of it is like young women of a um scream queen age is so that you know they can be better horror movie victims but i feel like if you had to justify it because they're like oh it has to be young women of like a child rearing age or whatever it's like maybe that's the 
type of human who has like the most life force energy in them at like a certain time in their lives or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, they're basically like electrical vampires. Yeah. Because they, it's not like a one and done thing. You got to keep re-upping on it to keep going. Yeah. Now there's the side effect that uh, they start to petrify. In the hours before like death, if they don't get the transference, they, you know, become more gaunt and stuff, but that's when their skin starts to petrify and that's when they get this stone skin invulnerability to everything. They turn to stone the closer they are to death. If they've had a transference and they're regularly like walking around and they don't need one soon, they're just as vulnerable to getting a bullet to the head or whatever as like a normal person. The efforts of their most recent research has been trying to find a synthetic version of this bioelectric energy without success. <laughs> so while Cooper was clearly tired of Murder. killing, uh, Eric was just fine with it. Apparently, Eric was like one of the earliest to undergo the procedure to experience the experiment, um, hence why he can no longer speak. But he he can still think. You know, he, he's not mindless. Yeah, he's just a bit like, it's just like an excuse for them to have one of them be like a big Frankenstein-y like brute monster. And Eric is very happy to continue being alive, so much so <laughs> that uh, he can feel his gauntness and stone skin returning. So he goes and just grabs an inmate, uh, Marge, who we've met. And he, you know, he goes on a little bit of a rampage in order to find this inmate and get a young girl uh, to the point where he murders some of the matrons that are um, helping to run the facility. Um, So he grabs Marge and forces his colleagues to do the transfer um, because he's fading just so fast. Uh, So they do so. Marge is dead. Um, But now all the girls in the prison are on high alert because there was this rampage. Our mad scientists, led by Dr. Murdoch, plan to deal with Rogers and Adams and, you know, the notes from Cooper by kidnapping Adams for the next transfer. Uh, Rogers manages to get into the house to try to rescue her. And when he gets into the house, he turns off the water to the house, takes out the fuse bulbs. So now everyone in the house, even up in the attic where they do these experiments, um, are in darkness. And then he grabs some sodium salts. Which is like... Salt, salt. Yeah. (laughs) Extra salt. Um, And he dumps it in the water where Adams is to affect the solution and stop the transfer. And they can't replace the water because the water's off and oh no. In order for Rogers to put the sodium salt in the bath, he waited for a diversion. uh, And that diversion came in the form of Eric, like, rampaging through the doctors because they didn't want to transfer energy to him. His last transfer was just a couple hours ago and he's already fading. Like, there's, like... There's no point in giving you energy. You should just die. And he does not like this. So he rampages through his doctor friends. And that allows Rogers to put the sodium salts into the solution. Uh, It does mean that Eric then like dies. Mm -hmm. You know, he runs out of steam. He's not the energizer bunny. And so now the people who are left are like Dr. Myers, Mrs. Ford, and Dr. Murdoch. So they manage to subdue Rogers 
and they're about to shoot Adams. And so he's like, okay, wait, here are the fuse bulbs. I just, I just turned off the water. Okay. So one of the doctors, I've, Dr. Meyer, it doesn't matter. He goes down to the basement with a candle to turn on the lights and turn on the water. And he does manage to do this, except he stumbles on the stairs and drops his candle and accidentally starts a fire in the basement, which quickly grows out of control. Um, we never see him again, so I think he burned up. Mm-hmm. As the main house is getting engulfed in flames, back at the prison dormitory, uh, Tracy has a gun. Yeah, that Rogers <laughs> gave to her earlier. We've been skipping over some details. It, it's okay. Yeah. Um, but she's like, oh, the lights are coming back on. Rogers said that that means that he's in trouble. Let's go, girls. And like they go to go storm the mansion with their single gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they, before they get there, you know, the flames come up. So they aren't even able to get inside. With the fire going on, Rogers and Adams are able to escape. And we see that Dr. Murdoch and Mrs. Ford stay in the room and Rogers is like you guys got to get out of here like the fire and Dr. Murdoch's like no I need to finish my experiment I need to finish my notes Mrs. Ford will you transcribe for me and she's like yes doctor and then the house is engulfed in flames so they they died presumably presumably um and then that's the end of the movie uh the girls are fine they're still in prison Dr. Rogers and Dr. Adams are out and you know yeah the movie just sort of ends yeah um i think the ending was one of the things that i was the most disappointed by simply because although it's that like universal style ending where once the main threat's taken care of the movie just sort of stops if there was ever a movie where i wanted like maybe so denouement it was this one because like as you say ford and murdoch just hang out to transcribe some notes in a burning laboratory which doesn't really make sense to me, like why they're suddenly like, yeah, let's just hang out and burn to death when like their whole thing has been like, let's murder people to keep ourselves alive for hundreds of years. So that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. The line Murdoch says is that the experiment has concluded. Yes. Which I think like is a sign like, hey, he's throwing in the towel. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. And then like, there's so many unanswered questions like, did they burn up in the house? What's up with the girls? What's going to happen with this prison? How is Rogers going to explain this to the State Department that sent mm-hmm. him here to investigate? There was also a doctor that went after Rogers and Tracy yeah. in, like, the phone booth or whatever. Yeah, he's, um, he's, like, still tied up in the prison. Yeah, so I guess he will explain everything. Right. Like, there's just a lot of loose ends here. Um, The girls, when they go on their rampage with their one gun, as you say, there seems to be only two guns on the entire premise. Uh, Like, there's a gun that Rogers ends up giving to Tracy, and there's a gun that, like, the mad scientists threaten Adams with. Because we're told that, like, not even the guards here have guns because it's not that kind of prison. Um, Which, hey, welcome to, like, the 1950s carceral system. Like... Still not great, which we'll talk about in a second, but, like, you don't have, like, prison guards walking around with Uzis or however America works these days. Do you want to tell us about, um, like, 1950s women's prisons? Yeah, so this was something that we weren't really expecting to come up in this movie. Like, we really didn't know what this movie was about. And at first we were a little confused 
because the movie starts out and it's like, oh, this is a detention home for girls. And we were like, okay, what does that mean? And we were trying to figure out like, what is this place? Cause there's like a social worker here, but like all the girls sleep together in like one big dormitory room, like an orphanage or a barracks or something. Yeah. It's like uh, in Queen's Gambit. Yeah. But like they're all old, not old women, but like they're all like adult young women. Yeah. They it's aren't... not like teens. Right. And so it was like, it, this can't be where like they send pregnant teens. Like yeah. what is going on? Yeah. Here? And it was like, oh, what are you in for? And stuff like that. It wasn't like juvenile delinquents where it's like, oh, well, they can't be in prison. So they have to be in like a weird like dormitory foster home thing or something. Cause yeah, they're all like smoking and they're all like, <laughs> yeah, I've been in here for years. <laughs> so like we were trying to figure it out. turns out that detention home for women is just like a 1950 euphemism for prison. This is just a women's prison. It's probably a like not max security. Like probably these Clearly, women, there's no guns. Yeah. Like probably these women aren't like murderesses. There was, the name Detention Home for Women um, sort of evokes the New York Detention Home for Women, which was like in like Madison Square and was fairly um, notorious. Uh, it existed from about 1932 to 1974, I think. But it was meant to be when it first opened, like the idea was that they were going to focus on like rehabilitation for the women, which in the 30s was like a new idea for prisons as opposed to just being about like punishment. And so you can kind of maybe guess that's what this place is supposed to be, that it's supposed to be like a rehabilitative center. That's why they've got like a social worker here who's like trying mm -hmm. to like look after the patients like mental health and run like movie nights for them and, and things like that. That being said, the New York detention home for women, um, did have like several abuses that were committed by like doctors against prisoners, uh, guards against prisoners, etc. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons for me that this movie is so extremely successful as a horror movie is due to the powerlessness of the people being preyed upon mm -hmm. and the presumption of the people in power who are perpetrating the acts. Um, abuses by doctors, guards, wardens, etc., against inmates of women's prisons are well-documented. Like, it's not just this one New York case that I'm talking about. Like, this stuff just happens, and we all kind of know it. Um, unethical experiments and medical procedures have been carried out against women in these kinds of institutions, as well as in, like, mental health care facilities. Mm -hmm. well, that's not what they would have called them back then. So the beginning of this movie where we're with these women who have like no power at all, like the least amount of power you can possibly have. And they're just getting like carted off into the night and like, you can hear them screaming, but the next morning everyone will be like, Oh yeah, she died in her sleep of a heart attack or something. It's really, really terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it's really, really effective for a horror movie to have the victims be people who just like are stuck in this situation can't go anywhere have no power you know rather than threatening people who can like get in a car and drive away you know yeah like i completely agree with you um it does mean that our active people in this movie are 
like these social workers. Right. Um, I think it would have been really powerful if they had been the prisoners themselves, but I understand why Mm -hmm. it's the social workers. I was also a little disappointed that, um, you know, Dr. Adams can only do so much. And then, oh, but wait, the male social worker, Dr. Rogers is here and he can do things. Yeah, there's definitely a thing here where like we start with Tracy as our protagonist, but she's too powerless. So she gets like Adams on her side, but then Adams is too powerless. So then we get Rogers in. And that's frustrating from like a narrative point of view. Although I will say that the movie's depiction of the way that like you know, these prisoners concerns are being shot down or like when Adams tries to like bring things up to the administration, the way that they shoot her down, like is a very, a very like apt portrayal of Mm. like the powerlessness of women. And the fact that like, yeah, nobody takes this shit seriously until a man comes in and is like, Hmm, there's a really well-written scene early on at the coroner's inquest where Murdoch just like very um pointedly and yet very subtly like undermines adam's entire testimony and then tries to use like rogers against her when rogers first comes in which is at this coroner's inquest where he's like you know saying well you know adams you haven't been here this long you were out doing movie night for the inmates while this was happening so how could you know what was going on with the prisoner almost Um, like a failure on her part for a an inmate to have committed suicide because she was busy doing movie night right and like wasn't it your job to be aware of these people's mental health so because adams is trying to say well she wouldn't have killed herself she wasn't that far gone and murdoch's trying to make it sound like well maybe you just didn't know because you weren't doing your job right he addresses rogers and he's like you know maybe if we had like a full-fledged clinical psychologist like rogers on staff you know, this wouldn't have happened. Isn't that right, Dr. Rogers, that like you're more qualified than just like a social worker? And Rogers is like, I don't really like the tone of that question. But I mean, yes, true. But I feel like Murdoch does sort of, you know, that's the moment where Murdoch kind of um, sets himself up to fail. Because I I guess at that point, the State Department goes, yeah, maybe we should have Rogers at the (laughs) prison checking it out. Yeah, the psychology in this movie is really interesting. Like you, you brought up one scene with Murdoch. Um, cause I wanted to point out that one where it's like, as you said, like very subtle in mm-hmm. the way that he's manipulating people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear enough that like the audience knows what's going on. And then also when Cooper is dying, mm-hmm. um, as I pointed out in the plot summary, like it was very interesting how he went from, no, we like we should just die. What, why are we continuing to live and then switching as soon as he knows, Oh wait, I'm about to die. Oh fuck. Maybe that like that survival instinct seems to kick in and he's like, no, two more years. Yeah. Kavanaugh gives a really good performance as Cooper. The scene where he like confesses to Rogers is really good as well. Victor joy does a really great job as Murdoch. Um, Same with Andoran as Ford. Uh, They make really great villains. Mm -hmm. Um, The villains in this movie are the type of villains who always get under my skin the most, Mm. which is like people who commit outrageously horrific acts like, you know, murdering young girls who are under their care uh, are super like obvious about it, are doing it for purely selfish reasons and then just kind of act like they're 
above morality, above the law, above everything else, uh, just because they have like authority, which yeah. they also just can't handle to see questioned. Mm-hmm. Like we don't in our day-to-day lives run into a lot of people who are 220 years old, but we do run into a lot of people like I've met many people like Miss Ford in my life who are mm-hmm. just like, just filled with a kind of like unreasonable hatred for being a decent human being. And you're just like, why are you like this? Yeah. Like completely bitter, completely selfish mm-hmm. and can't, bear to be questioned yeah and seem to get their only like joy or satisfaction out of like taking people down yeah um murdoch too you know just has this arrogance about him where it's like he can't he doesn't recognize the authority of anyone else you know when rogers is asking questions like it's he's insulted to even have rogers be here and the movie you know makes this attitude of theirs that they're above regular morality be because of their like quasi immortal nature. Right. Where it's like, yeah, I don't give a shit what the like police chief of New York says or whatever. I'm fucking 220 years old. Like I watched your grandfather die, you know, like I, yeah, but the psychology here where the reason why they are so heartless is because they believe they're above normal humanity makes it to be a really good allegory for, the attitudes of the extremely wealthy mm-hmm. um, people who believe that they're just sort of owed power and deference and that the rules don't apply to them because I've got all this power. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't have to like have a conscience. Right. It's it's the villains here have been inoculated from human compassion in a way that is very familiar when you look at people who have a lot of of money and power. Yeah. It's no longer a question of like, what have you done to achieve this authority? Like Mm -hmm. you earned a position or whatever. It's like, I deserve this authority. I deserve your respect and you definitely don't have mine. It's not even about deserved. It's about owed. Yeah. I'm owed power and respect. Right. And in this movie, we see it when like these guys just sort of think that like, murdering people to keep themselves alive is like a completely reasonable thing to do. And it's like the math on that does not check out my guys. Like, what are you for immortals? Like, what are they fucking like offering the world? Like, it seems like they've been, there's not even any kind of monologue about like, yeah, but then our research will improve humanity. There's nothing like that. No, no. And there's no sense that like, we don't really know what's their lives have been like between, apprenticing with St. Germain and running a women's prison in the fifties, other than we know that they bought some art in the (laughs) 1880s. Um, But it feels like they've been trying to keep this a secret the whole time they've been doing it. So they're just doing it for themselves. Yeah. Which just makes me hate them like so, so much. And I think the willingness to kill three girls on camera through the runtime of the movie is like a huge asset in making the threat feel credible, but also in making the villains like really monstrous. Mm-hmm. Cause you're just watching like a bunch of people standing around as they like murder a girl in a tub. Yeah. It's very cold. I was honestly surprised when Cooper started to speak up, mm-hmm. but it definitely underlined how everyone else was very like, 
almost too scientific about it. Which is interesting because they're all very scientific. Cooper has at least some compassion. And then Eric is like completely devoid of both. He just like... He's not shown to be like very scientific about it. Um, and he's just like gung ho about keeping on living. I think um, aside from the villains, uh, Charlotte Austin and William Hudson, who play Adams and Rogers, are effectively very likable. Mm-hmm. They aren't really doing anything like super special, but like Rogers avoids the trap of being accidentally an asshole that like so many 1950s male heroes fall into. So like mm-hmm. that immediately gives him a leg up. and um the actress playing adams does a really good job of like not just like completely shutting down tracy's theories or concerns but being like okay but no we need proof and being like realistic about it Mm. um as like someone who is in i would guess like middle management right would need to navigate yeah she's low enough on the totem pole that the prisoners can go to her with their concerns but also too low on the totem pole to actually do anything, yeah. which is a really frustrating position to be in. Yeah. We have seen this kind of setup before of mad scientist using people to prolong his or someone else's life, a mad scientist taking advantage of prisoners. But this is a very new and unique approach, I feel. like I, It's like the first time that it's been a female prison. Yeah. Um, That's been a group of doctors. Yeah. And... It, it just it felt strangely modern, even though it is an old setup. Well, I think that comes down to the fact that it, again, whether it's intentional or not, the movie seems to be talking about some real themes about the fact that people in power, people in authority can't just be inherently trusted. And even more than that, like probably are abusing their power. And if they're going to do it, they're going to do it against the people who are the most powerless in society. So they're the people who are the least likely to be taken seriously when they complain, right? Mm -hmm. Like the movie comes up with this science fiction justification that like, oh, it has to be, uh, you know, 20 to 30 something year old women for the, the thing to work best. But on a thematic level, having it be a women's prison is very apt because like, I feel like if a bunch of mad scientists were just like one at a time murdering like people in like a men's prison, like they wouldn't be able to keep that up for very long, Mm -hmm. you know, in the same way, because even though male prisoners are still very low on the social totem pole, they're higher than women and people when they're in power and they abuse that power, it's the easiest to get away with it. If you're doing it against the people who have the least power, to speak out against you, right? It's why it's a lot easier to be mean to children than to be mean to their parents. <laughs> sure. I, I will say that, like, we are definitely speaking in very broad strokes. I think that there would be many cases where, like, a woman in a woman's prison, because of her age and gender, um, people would be more likely to sympathize with her situation versus... Um, someone of the same age in a male prison yeah although then we're also taking into account like the difference in time where like yes like women are still put down and gaslit and not taken seriously today but like it it was almost to like a professional degree that it happens 
in the 1950s. I mean, there's a really like subtly chilling moment in the movie very early on that speaks to the way that 1950s society demeaned women where Tracy comes in to Adam's office near the start of the movie. And she's like, yeah, didn't you hear all that fucking screaming that was going on all last night while they were murdering people right under your nose? And I was like, oh no, one of the doctors gives me like a super, super strong sleeping pill that just knocks me out all night. And it's like, huh? Yep. So these, these thematic elements Mm -hmm. of talking about people in authority feel unique and because the writer's someone who was blacklisted i'm inclined to believe they're not accidental as they might be sometimes we run into these movies where it's like oh this movie's kind of talking about something but we're pretty sure it's not meaning to right it stands out all the more because this is the 1950s when trust for authority figures was at like an all-time high where it was like oh you know the cop on the beat is your best friend and you know your your mayor it just wants to help the city and like the president is everybody's grandpa and like this kind of thing right Mm -hmm. um so for a movie to be about the fact that like it's not just that these people are bad ones to put in authority it's that being in authority allows them to be bad sure i'm sure they would have found a way to kidnap girls. And oh, oh, sure. Even if they weren't here. But yes, I do, absolutely. I do want to find out how they got like hired to be the yeah, admin team of this prison. They, um, there's some exposition that's given that says that uh, that Murdoch and company came in about two years ago. And yeah. that's when all these like weird things started happening. And it's like, what? Like, did Murdoch get hired and then he just brought everyone in? Was it like a group interview? Like, right. And it's like, like, what's your what's your experience, Mr. Murdoch, with running prisons? Well, when I was running Bedlam in the 1880s in London, <laughs> I felt that and it's like, wait, what? What did you say? Yeah. There is a funny moment where they're like, yeah, we bought this painting in 1850. I mean, 1950. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it's a fairly good movie for all these points that we've, we've brought up. Um, we see people's dead bodies. There's no gore, right. um, but it's 1957. Um, there's some very awesome moody music, a lot of atmosphere with the visuals. Um, we actually hear the heartbeat in Cooper's office and also when we hear Eric as well. Like it's a consistent thing. It's smart that the movie like... It, it explains the science like just enough yeah. where it's like, yeah, we have to transfer the electrical bioelectrical energy from one person to another. And you're sitting there in the theater and you're like, yeah, yeah, people have bioelectrical energy. That's like a thing. And like, that's what keeps people alive and stuff. Right. That's like the premise of Frankenstein. So like, yeah, you just like <laughs> hook like a wire into one person and a wire into another and you just drain them like a like a you're recharging a battery. Like, yeah, that makes sense. And then it's just like. Also, in the hours before we die, we turn to stone. And you're like, all right, well, hey, I've never (laughs) lived for 200 years and had to recharge myself by killing others. So how do I know that's not what happens? And then it's like their heartbeats are audible in a room. And like, that's just never explained. It's just a thing that happens. Like, my best guess is that because they... It like echoes in their chest. Yes, exactly. Because they're made of stone now. Yeah, Don't think too hard about it. (laughs) Right. But I think it's smart that the movie doesn't think too hard about it either. It just like leaves it out there and doesn't try to explain it. Like over justify. Yes, right. So this is the bottom half of 
the double feature with Zombies of Mora Tau. Let's move on to ranking and see how we feel about it compared to Zombies of Mora Tau. Is it in line with Variety's claim that it fills an hour or is it better? I did start my range by looking at where Zombies of Mora Tau is, which is at 93. Same. Below Zombies of Moratau is the She-Creature, and I was definitely sure this was definitely better than the She-Creature. Yes. I wanted to give maybe the possibility that Zombies of Moratau was better because of the fact that, like, of all the interesting things it was doing with zombies and stuff that we identified last week. Um, so I made 94 my floor. Going up the list, I ended up with quite a long range um, as I tried to find a movie that I was really confident was better than this one and i ended up at number 60 the bad seed which is oddly enough way more melodramatic than this women in prison mad scientist movie um but i think is a better movie overall Mm -hmm. than this because uh although we've been singing this movie's praises as you said at the beginning of our discussion, it still falls prey to a lot of low-budget B-movie problems. Padding of time. Um, there was nothing so egregious that I was, like, tapping my foot ready for the next thing. But mm-hmm. it does fill its time. Yeah. So below the bad seed is Cult of the Cobra, which I think is a great example of a movie that's accidentally interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this movie's, I'm pretty sure, interesting on purpose. So I made my ceiling uh, number 60, which means my range is 61 to 94. Okay, so my range is within yours. Same kind of beginnings of looking at Zombies of Moratau and being willing to have the discussion of zombies being better. Looking above, I stopped at number 77, Dr. Minault's Secret, Hmm. because I was like, yeah, I think this is better than Dr. Minault's Secret. Um, that movie is very, like, traditional in, like, it's an ape dude and who who done it and, you know, <laughs> traditional um, mad scientist stuff, whereas this is, like, a new take on that. Um, but above that is Valley of the Zombies, which has nothing to do with zombies, but the moodiness of it, like, the atmosphere was, mm. like, palpable, mm. just how dark some of those shadows were and everything, and kind of more fun. Um, yeah. So that that's where my range was. It was 77 to 94. So the reason why I ended up going higher than Valley of the Zombies is while that movie is more fun, I think this is more effective as a horror movie. Like, this is a very horrific movie if you give the premise its due, mm-hmm. right? And then, like, above Valley of the Zombies is The Wolf of the Malviners, which is a weird, like mid-40s French attempt to copy Universal movies. Above that is The Resuscitated Monster, and I don't remember which one that is. Do you remember which one that is? Yes, it's Mexico trying to do Universal. Um, Dude kidnaps the girl in the castle, and he has the fucked up face. Okay, this is the one with the guy who has the paper mache face. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because then above that is The Witch, which is super weird. And above that is uh, Phantom of the Convent. So we've got sort of a string of movies that are like foreign attempts to do horror, uh, do universal horror specifically. I'm kind of willing to maybe put The Man Who Turned to Stone somewhere in here, maybe break up 
some of these Mexican movies. I think it should go above The Wolf of the Malvinors, but I don't know how much higher than that it should really go. Sure. Yeah, I I think that's good. Um, for the record, I am kind of with you about going higher and comparing this to Cult of the Cobra, but mm. like, I don't know. I this This does feel like a good spot. So then entering the list at the new number 75 is The Man Who Turned to Stone from 1957, directed by Laszlo Kardosh. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can follow the show by subscribing to our RSS feed, help us out by leaving us a rating or a review, spread the word of the show online or in person with uh, word of mouth being the best way for podcasts to grow their audience, or financially support us by heading on over to patreon.com slash podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. There was just recently a new gothic retrospective piece put up on Patreon looking at the very first gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto, from 1764. So that's available for patrons $10 and up. Um, But yeah, any of the amazing things that we've done in the past is available on there. So that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're back in the world of Roger Corman. Oh. With the undead. Do you think he would have been trying to cash in on Zombies of Moratau? Probably not. I think the undead was in the works for um, a lot longer because that's the movie he left AIP to go to Allied Artists to produce. Sure. And we've now seen a couple of his Allied Artists movies. Do you think... Zombies of Moratau is trying to rip off Corman zombies. I don't know because I don't know if the undead is a zombie movie. Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah. I'm making assumptions. Well, we will see the truth, creatures of the night, next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.